This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Dakai. Dr. Dakai is an American professor of computer science and engineering at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, or HKUST, and a distinguished research scholar at Berkeley's International Computer Science Institute. He is among only 17 scientists named founding fellow by the Association for Computational Linguistics for his pioneering contributions to machine learning foundations of machine translation, which led to the Google, Microsoft, Yahoo, and many other internet-based translators. Dakai was recruited as founding faculty of the University of Science and Technology in Hong Kong directly from UC Berkeley, where his PhD thesis was one of the first to argue for a paradigm shift toward machine learning-based natural language processing. He holds a Kellogg HKUST Executive MBA and a BS in Computer Engineering from UC San Diego, where he graduated Phi Beta Kappa cum laude from Ravel College with honors. For his work on AI ethics and society, Dakai was one of eight inaugural members selected by Google in 2019 for its AI Ethics Council. Hi, Dakai. Hi, Deb. I want to start off by bringing us back to the moment that we met at a retreat convened by the Center for the Unintended Consequences of Technology. It was a thrilling weekend of discussions and panels and deeply meaningful conversations about the urgent issues we now face in the state of tech. What brought you to that conference in Santa Cruz that weekend? How did you get to thinking about the need to address the unintended consequences of technology? That was really fortuitous. I had been working for some time already on the unintended consequences of AI because as someone who's been working for 35 years in AI and decided to stay in academia so that I could do things like invent the first web translation system for the purpose of bringing people together to get cultures to understand each other better. And it was the early days of the internet, and people had this dream that it was going to democratize information and that all the problems that we were having before would go away because people would have information to make the right decisions and all that sort of stuff. And of course, what we started seeing was the polar opposite of that, which was a terrible, tragic thing to me that undid everything that I had been trying to do. It was creating massive amounts of polarization, and people were believing more and more either fake, outright fake things, or jumping to conclusions based on extremely selective partial information that was presented out of context. And I got really worried about this and realized that at the core of that was two things that I had been working on forever. One was how human language is used to encode ideas and how sensitive our unconscious biases are to that. And then second was how easy that is to exploit 
using, you know, the same kinds of machine learning AIs that I was in the vanguard of pushing into human language technology. And so that caused me to pivot very strongly to looking at these kinds of unintended consequences, to trying to raise the alarm, to try to get people to understand the new social dynamics. So when we talk about unintended consequences of technology, it's not all the problem of the technology. It is also heavily the problem of us as human users of the technology and... And human creators of technology. As well as human creators of technology. You know, just as human society, we've all learned to do the right things with technology. So, you know, like when cars were invented, initially humans were really dangerous drivers. We sort of evolved to create conventions of how we should drive in ways that were not so incredibly dangerous, right? So we learned to deal with unintended consequences of lots and lots of technologies. Well, AI-powered social media and search engines and basically AI as the guardian of knowledge, AI as the guardian of propagation of knowledge, AI as the de facto sensor is not a technology that we as humans have learned how to manage the unintended consequences of. And it's not only the creators of tech, it's also all of us, just just like we all drive cars and we all have to learn responsibly what we need to do. It's the same thing with the tech. And so when I spoke to Chris, who organizes the unintended consequences of technology, it was clear that we, we had a major confluence of our visions about what was important. And so that's how we ended up in that wonderful event where you and I met. So I want to pick up on something here because you, I think, are uniquely positioned to solve the kinds of problems that you just laid out that are integral to understanding both why we have so many unintended consequences of technology and also what we need to do in order to build better technology. And that is because you have a fascinating and diverse background that combines this knowledge of the technological elements of production with music and language and artificial intelligence and also cultural intelligence. And, and that stems from a liberal arts perspective that emphasizes creativity in both directions, right? The technical and the human dimension. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how those two kind of facets of your training and of your interests come together and what they allow and enable you to do. Oh, that's a that's a really good question. Yeah, I think to me, it becomes hard to even enumerate because for me, these things are not separate. Like I've been playing music since before I can remember. I mean, they tell me I was picking up melodies when I was two years old. And so I can't remember not doing it. Actually, I apparently didn't start speaking until I was almost three. So the musical aspect of what we are for me is not really separable from the idea of communication and the idea of how we encode what we want to communicate, which is what language is all about. And it is also what computer science is all about. Obviously, programming language is the same thing. It's like, how do we encode what we want to communicate, what we want to do? But ultimately, you know, all of information theory and information science is about that. And then as we move up towards AI and cognitive science, again, it's how do we interpret things? How do we perceive the world? What are the things that we impose from our own mindset, our own cultural background upon the perceptions of whatever 
language is being directed at us, whether it's music or language or visual languages, signs or dance or anything like that. We're imposing our own subjective interpretation. Interpretation and translation are the same thing, right? And so this is this is another reason why I I chose as soon as I finished my PhD to focus on studying how machines could learn to translate because that is the same thing as how do we make machines that are capable of interpreting? How do we how do we look at the way that cultures and unconscious biases, which is what my thesis was all about, influence the way that we interpret things in our own contexts. You know, so this is both technical and humanistic. And to me, it's a very artificial distinction that we've made in recent times, you know, maybe in the in the recent last century. If you rewind back to the Renaissance, people didn't make that distinction. You were either an educated, knowledgeable, creative thinker or not. And that was super important. Da Vinci was an artist and he was a informed person working on technologies. And Descartes, I would say, was the same way. So we really have this division that comes much, much later. Nobody told Da Vinci, look, you can't be a scientist because you're a great artist. I think <laughs> exactly. It, it was so important, right? His studies of anatomy informed his sculpture and on and on. His science informed his art and his art informed his science. I think now that we've hit this era where AI powered knowledge routing, you know, social media and search engines has really crept up and completely disrupted the underpinnings of the way our societies work, the way our democracies work. This is the worst possible time in human history for us to have like decided, oh no, we're going to separate people's understanding of the world into people who understand the technology and people who understand the humanistic and the, and the society aspects. This is perfect because you have just allowed me to deliver my weekly PSA to take your humanities classes seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you really need all the kinds of thinking uh to be good at either the technological side or the humanistic side. You need basically, to me, a way to manage our unconscious biases. 90% plus of our mental processes are the unconscious, what we, you know, what we call in psychology, automatic processing, what Danny Kahneman calls system one. And that was what I was focusing on in my PhD thesis way back at Berkeley, at a time when AI was had for decades been dominated by logic-based models, role-based, knowledge-based models, where they were trying to model, whether they knew it or not, the the conscious, aware types of of rational thinking, deliberative processes. That the assumption is that is the height of human intelligence. That's what separates us from other animals. That we can do that. It's heavily based upon our linguistic abilities, right? Because basically, when we do that, we're we're essentially talking to ourselves using, you know, say the language of mathematics uh, to reason through a problem, or the language of logic to reason through a problem, or etc. This is again why language is really the key underpinning of human intelligence. Without that, we can't think those things. We, we don't have the ability to use the metaphors of calculus or logic or ball, balls and urns in probability theory or things like that to even be able to do that kind of deliberative conscious reasoning. That said, 
even for us, that's very slow and painful. That's why your calculus class is painful. That's why chess is hard to play, right? And there was this false assumption that if we could teach AIs to do these hard things, these things that are hard for humans, then all the easy things would just come naturally. And so AI went down that rabbit hole for several decades. Before people finally realized, you know, that is not how we do 95% of what we're doing day to day in human intelligence. You are not understanding. You are not interpreting what I'm saying in English to you by doing that process, which is what everybody in AI was trying to do, right? Everybody was thinking, oh, yeah, we're going to use these logic-based formalisms to build systems of AI human language understanding. And the thing is, you're not sitting there going, oh, sitting, that was a verb. Here, that was an adverb. And it was modifying sitting. <laughs> None of this stuff is happening consciously. If you were doing this consciously, this podcast would end sometime next year. And the thing is, because of that, when we're relying on that unconscious type of automatic processing, it is full of unconscious biases. It's super fast, which is why we evolution left us with that. But it also is sub subject to a lot of that unconscious bias. And that leads to confirmation biases, you know, all sorts of exaggerations of, of you know, like paranoia, excessive fear. It's all because of evolution, because sure, you know, fear is can be life saving. You might be wrong 99% of the time when you think that shadow in the bushes, a predator about to like spring upon you. So you've run away uselessly. But that one time you were right, it saved your life. And so we have all these unconscious biases that make us naturally fearful of unfamiliar looking or sounding people and assume that if you're not part of my in-group, my tribe, that you're dangerous. The fact that we do all of our reasoning, you know, 90 plus percent of our reasoning using these unconscious mechanisms is dangerous both in thinking about technology solving engineering problems and it's also dangerous in terms of humanistic endeavors like trying to figure out social science or and governance and so what we've done since the enlightenment times is to go and invent system two based ways you know like conscious controlled reasoning ways to rationally try to compensate for those unconscious biases those excesses that we have from evolution and so things like the scientific method are an encapsulation of those compensations for the excesses of our unconscious bias the fact that humans naturally are actually really bad at logic <laughs> we're actually naturally really bad at probability we always, you know, overestimate or underestimate probability. Tons of experiments in cognitive science proving this, right? And so, like, by rigorously forcing us to follow statistically valid, you know, hypothesis testing and experimental design, by rigorously forcing us in the scientific method to start by observing, by deeply observing the data, and then to formulate multiple competing hypotheses including hypotheses that are inconsistent with what you a priori believe. Those are methods of disciplining us, using our system to, to like overcome our natural biases. And it's super important in not just engineering and science, it's super important also in 
understanding the social political dimensions and even in the arts right so we have this recent wave of people championing things like design thinking which is really nothing more than the same iterative process as in the scientific method but re rephrased for those who are more in the arts or design or architecture huh. i'd never heard anybody describe it that way that's fascinating you know the tricky thing about this is framing bias is one of the biggest biases in our unconscious how we choose to describe the situation is full of unconscious bias because you can describe the exact same situation using several dozen different metaphors that hugely influences not only the structure of the logical chain of argument that you use because when you choose different words in different metaphors all the predicates are different and because the predicates are different the arguments for the predicates are often very different right and so you end up with two extremely different logical descriptions or dozens of different variations each of which by itself looks perfect logically and like people will even say and i've stated my axioms right rigorously here are my axioms but what they are not thinking about is yeah but the way you chose your predicates and what arguments your predicates had <laughs> that was your unconscious bias already determined the outcome yeah so this is you know the, this is linguistic relativism this is the superior wharf hypothesis right language is structuring your thought and you don't even realize how much it's doing that well i could talk about about metaphors for the next 700 days that's what i wrote my uh, graduate dissertation on but before we go too far down all of those rabbit holes and come up again in 2021 I wanted to ask you whether you could provide us with a working definition of AI. Why is AI a particularly important area of ethical consideration? You've touched on this already when you talked about unintentional bias and unconscious bias, but, but why is AI such an important area for ethical consideration within the sphere of technological innovation, production, and consumption? Let me tackle the first question there first, because I, I think I'm glad you asked. It's super important. There's all sorts of misinformed ideas about what AI is floating out there. You, know, you hear people earnestly saying AI means the same thing as machine learning. It's a, like I, I heard this at an AI ethics workshop recently where <laughs> the person to, giving the tutorial on AI was claiming that that was the entire premise. That this is not what AI is. And I say that as one of the people in the vanguard of pushing machine learning into AI. But that is that does not define what AI is. AI is a field of inquiry, just like just like physics is a field of inquiry about how intelligence works and how we can build models of that. Right? Because once you build a model of something, it becomes a machine. And so we've already seen many different phases within the field of AI of different modeling approaches. You know, there's good old-fashioned AI, which is based on logic. We were talking about that. And, and then machine learning approaches, which sort of seem to have, quote, won the day, but only for the day. Those of us who are really doing AI research all the way to the granddaddy of deep learning, Jeff Hinton, in, in whose lab I spent my postdoc time at Toronto playing around happily with, with what we now call deep learning. We recognize the limitations of the current machine learning approaches. You also hear a lot of people saying that, AI is big data, or AI is about the hardware, you know, the fact that we have massive parallel GPUs now and all that 
sort of thing. And, and none of that is what AI is. First of all, true AI is not big data. True AI is small data. Because instead of the current deep learning approaches that are super data hungry and super compute hungry and need an exponential amount of data and, and computation to learn to a level which is still making mistakes that a human three-year-old child would laugh at. And that child used an exponentially smaller amount of data to learn to make better generalizations, right? That is what a true AI model would be able to do, is be able to generalize brilliantly from small amounts of data using small amounts of computation. The field is advancing. The field is advancing super fast. The, the progress is is just mind-bogglingly fast. And the AI that we're going to have 10 years from now is going to be extremely different from what we're seeing today, just as what we're seeing today is mind-bogglingly different from what we saw 10 years ago and 10 years before that. And that's what makes it super important to think about the ethical considerations, because even with the weak AI of today, we've already seen these massive disruptions with polarization caused by AIs that are driving filter bubbles and echo chambers. And here's the problem. AI in the industry, AI in commercial endeavors, social media, search engine, and so forth, they are making profits. They are in the service of maximizing profit for the shareholders. And the way they make profit is by getting people to click, by getting people to spend more time looking at a post or a, a hit. And AIs have rapidly learned that the best way to do that is to push all those buttons from, from your unconscious biases. And those are exactly the ones that trigger your confirmation biases, that trigger your outrage, that trigger your fear-based biases, because those are emotions that are three times stronger than any other human emotion. And so... We are already in a totally dysfunctional society today because of AI. And that's not, that's even a weak AI that is going to be far more amplified 10 years from now. And if we don't get ahead of this now, our society is just going to be ripped apart. Wow. It's a pretty doomsday proclamation. I'm very glad I'm teaching dystopian fiction this quarter because it fits right <laughs> into the view that. I already have gained over the past 10 weeks. Take us back before the landscape became so apocalyptic. Um, you're known as one of the original AI pioneers. Oh, gosh. Thank you. But, you know, I, I would not not call myself an original AI pioneer. I mean, I'm, I'm far too young for that. Other people have called you an original AI pioneer. <laughs> what did AI look like when you started? Did you have any sense of where it was going to go? And how have we gotten to where we are now? What happened when I was a PhD student at Berkeley was a microcosm of what I would end up doing for a couple of decades in the field of AI to help shift that whole field into not trying to model the real world, which is what good old-fashioned AI was doing, trying to write logical rules for describing the whole world, but rather to model the mind, trying to figure out how do these non-logical elements, these very probabilistic massive amounts of dumb neurons operate together in complex ways, meaning it's a complex 
dynamic system from which emerges learning behavior and it learns about the world by itself. You don't code it by hand. And so it's basically, you know, aiming to build um, an artificial child uh, who learns about the world from the environment and from from us, from the people that it's surrounded by. Can you give me a case where it actually foundationally makes a consequential difference to have AI that's modeled on the mind versus modeled on the world? Those are two phrases you used before. I'd like to hear how that plays out. I think that's really important in the context of society because it's not just language understanding, as I was mentioning a moment ago, just to be able to figure out things like cut the grass as opposed to cut the disk space. Like, what do you mean? Uh, what, what cut do you mean? This is all over language, right? But the thing is, when we think about society and the unintended consequences, when you have this old-fashioned descriptions, rules about how the world operates, that is stuck in an old-fashioned mindset where we took the metaphor of programming languages like C++ or Java as how the brain works, which it's not. Right. That is not what neurons are doing. And for us to think logically the way that Java programs are written or C++ programs are written is is actually hard for us to do. And when we're modeling society like that, it's imposing that rule-based, logic-based approach. And in the context of AI ethics, people are still making the mistake of thinking that we can code those rules into the AIs. Because a lot of the popular discourse about AI is still stuck in the good old-fashioned AI days. This is reinforced by Hollywood movies where the AIs are these logical creatures that can't understand human emotion and can't understand context and can't understand shades of gray. That's become such a Hollywood meme that it's entered the popular consciousness and it's really hard to get rid of. So what does Hollywood get wrong with Westworld and Frankenstein's monster and the lovable Wally? What does it get wrong? So it gets wrong that like AI is is logic based. Modern AI is not logic based. Even though we're using digital computers to implement our neural nets, that is not the same thing as making an AI that is rule-based. We're basically using computers as simulators, the same way that a physicist might do it, or say a meteorologist might do it, right? To predict weather, you have to figure out these complex dynamic systems that are atmospheric conditions in over a wide space. And there's often no closed form equations that you can solve to tell us what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. So what do you do? You build a huge simulation and you could build a physical simulation that would be really huge, but that'd be super expensive and impractical. And so they use computers to simulate all those particles in the atmosphere and moving around, right? The wind patterns and the dynamics. And so you run the simulation to see what's going to happen. That's how we use computers to run neural networks. The neural network that we're simulating is not a a logic-based system any more than the meteorological patterns in wind and pressure and humidity. And so we make this mistake in a lot of the Hollywood memes of thinking that because we're using digital computers, it's still based on logical rules. It's not. It's the same kind of shades of gray, context-sensitive, probabilistic processing, statistical processing that our brains do. Does science fiction get anything right? 
I think it's beginning to, when it tackles these struggles that AIs have with discovering, you know, it typically is framed as discovering their humanity, right? It's something like Westworld or programs like that. Then they're recognizing that, oh yeah, AIs actually can have emotions. They can be creative. They can have all the same human impulses. We can build stuff like that. And I think that's important for us to realize in AI ethics and, and to like think where this is going because it is important and there are both crucial upsides and downsides to machines that actually have the ability to think about emotion, to have emotion, to have things like empathy and so forth. And I just want to point out that the very common trope that machines might be super intelligent and be able to do number crunching and vast amounts of processing, but they'll never have human feelings and creativity and stuff like that. That is a complete misconception of how intelligence and AI works. Emotions are far more primitive than the other stuff we're trying to model with AI. You don't need human level intelligence to have emotion. Like anyone who has a dog <laughs> knows <laughs> that emotions are at a much simpler level of mental processing. Well, I have a dog, but I think she's smarter than I am. <laughs> I think her mental processes <laughs> run, run much quicker, <laughs> less interference. <laughs> right. I mean, mod modeling that is actually far easier than modeling language understanding. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Why is it then that you think that AI is such a generative and obsessive focus for fictional imagining. I mean, it's just fascinating, right? It goes to all these core existential questions, like what is it to be human? What is hum what 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 is humanity? Does my dog have a soul? <laughs> and so, like, does the AI have a soul? Where are we going in the future? Can I be simulated by an AI? Would my consciousness also be in the machine then? What does that even mean? What does consciousness mean? It's also a mirror to ourselves on top of all of that. The better films I've seen about AI are using AI as a metaphor for, for ourselves. And it really taps into all of the deepest searching existential questions and reflective questions we have about ourselves. I want to switch gears here and ask you some questions about some of the very urgent work that you're doing right now. You're an active and pivotal member of Google's inaugural council on its AI development. How did you end up on that council? A couple of years ago, there weren't that many people who were talking a lot about and drawing attention to these things. The field has exploded a lot over the last year or two. They were also aware of my work in music and cultural and arts and anti-discrimination, refugee support uh, kinds of work. And so they were attracted to, to that, as well as the fact that uh, as someone who is based in Hong Kong, but also in, in Berkeley, <laughs> having decades and decades of experience closely watching and, and, and deeply understanding China and Asia and how those cultures see AI and ethics, not as a caricature level as we typically see in the Western media, but 
with all the subtleties and the nuances and the complexities. They told me that those were things that were important. You're leading me right into my next question, which is exactly about globalization and tech. Your work as a professor takes you between Hong Kong and Berkeley and around the world. And how does geography, centers of technology that operate as satellites that export technological products and designs and imaginations to a global public impact technological development? Culture matters hugely. Ethics is incredibly varied. Of course, real ethics, the real study of ethics is very broad and deep. It's not the guy on the street when they hear ethics, they just think, oh, what are the right rules? And people tend to think, uh, oh, uh, what are the universal principles, right? Especially in the West, immediately people start jumping to universal human rights or things like that. And if you really go deep into the study of ethics, there's a lot more to it than that. Right? There's really, first of all, enormous differences between very old schools of ethics. Like we're talking thousands of years, much older than the history of our country. And they have very rich traditions that while they might share a lot of things with other cultures, actually you have to do the, the work to understand how those systems cohere how societies are built around different combinations of ethics. And, and so there's a fundamental difference in the, in the study of ethics between prescriptive and descriptive ethics. And, and for me, this is a huge parallel because mm -hmm. in natural language processing and computational linguistics, we also had to fight this battle. And it took like 30 years because linguistics it was is really heavily influenced by prescriptive linguistics. That's your grammar school teacher that tells you, oh, you can't put dangling prepositions at the end of your sentence. I'm good. You know, it's, it's they're prescribing a rule to you. And on the other hand, if you are a scientist and you're observing, then you're trying to describe how language is actually used by humans, by cultures in the world. And if you do that right for English, you realize People put prepositions at the ends of sentences all the time. There's this great story about Winston Churchill, who would write the speech, right? And his speechwriter would come back, always applying all those prescriptive rules. And he really got fed up with it one day because his secretary had gone and put all the dangling prepositions into the middle of his sentences. And he wrote back in big letters to his secretary, this is exactly the sort of English up with which I will not put. <laughs> we have 7,000 languages, 7,000 cultures in the world today, not even counting all the subcultures, right? And so like if, before you start getting all prescriptive, you need to do the hard work of doing the descriptive ethics first. You know, you can't just invalidate all those cultures. That's a terribly neo-colonialist attitude. You, you have to go in and just describe, okay, so for this culture, here is how the eth ethical systems work. Here is how the language, their language is built around those ethical principles, because language is heavily built around our ethical principles, right? And, and here's how the, the society has survived, right? Because evolution wipes out all the societies where the ethical systems are not sustaining. I, I'll give you an example in reverse first, right? Just because uh, you, you probably don't speak Chinese, but like in English, you remember the previous president's campaign slogan? Not the current president, the previous President. The, pre the previous president. I, I, I really can't remember anything before this week. <laughs> right. This presidency is a thousand years old. <laughs> so, so 
Yes, we can. <laughs> so, you know, you, you had that, tens of thousands of people chanting, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, and, we can. Um, I challenge my students in Hong Kong, right, who are international, but a majority of them can speak Chinese. How would you translate that into a Chinese campaign slogan? Right. And they're like, uh, uh, and they can't answer because number one, in Chinese, there's no word for yes. There are words for true or correct. But if somebody asks you, you know, did you eat lunch yet? You don't say true. You don't say correct. Right. Those are different senses of yes. And in Chinese, you, 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 you can't say yes. You actually have to say eaten or have eaten. And there's no word for no. Same thing. Yet you could, you could literally translate the word we and can and put those together. But it would be as if I walked up to you and said, we are able to. <laughs> it doesn't sound quite the same. <laughs> right? You just stare at me blankly. It's like, what are you talking about? You're able to what? <laughs> um, so, you know, these are three of the shortest, simplest words in the English language that kids learn first. And you can't even translate that. Right? And in reverse, you have in Chinese the word guai, which is one of the first words that children learn. And you cannot translate it into English. Uh, you know, people try and they, they come up with things like obedient or well-behaved or good, <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, yeah, but no, because, because, you know, words like obedient in English, they have a slightly negative connotation. It's kind of like a slave, slavish connotation. But in Chinese, it's the highest pinnacle of praise. It encapsulates everything there is about virtue for a child. And it's based on thousands of years of virtue ethics that draw heavily from, you know, Confucian and Taoist and Buddhist philosophical notions of ethics. And then you have similarly you have words for the for at the adult level for that kind of virtue. The, the word da in you know like in the Taoist classic, maybe you've probably read it, Tao Te Ching, uh, that middle word da is again untranslatable. People just say virtue. But it's the kind of virtue that is consistent with the ethics traditions of thousands of years of Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism and so on. And so at government levels also, there's a word for that that is heavily linked to Chinese notions of virtuous government and is heavily linked to why the current government in China is so popular in China and has such higher levels of support than our government in the U.S. has among Americans, right? Uh, but but all of this is untranslatable because language is so closely tied with culture, is so closely tied with ethics. It's embedded in an entire system. Yeah. So ge the geography, the regions, the cultures are so important to the way technology and AI interact against that background. Mm -hmm. I can see why Google would want you to sit at that table. Who else is sitting at the table with you? So Google was trying to bring really, truly diverse voices to the table. South African mathematician. I think this is important because, again, if you want to do descriptive ethics, even if you violently disagree on what the ethical principles are, you need to at least understand how vast regions are seeing the ethical issues before you can start prescribing, here's the right thing to do. Not listening to those voices and keeping yourself cooped up in your own little echo chamber is exactly how we ended up in the, I'm trying to think of a polite word. Yes. 
<laughs> yes, thank you, that we are in today. Okay, so we're talking about geographic diversity. We're talking about racial and cultural diversity here, gender diversity. What about intellectual diversity? What kinds of and ranges of expertise do you think ought to be at the table when discussing and thinking about and building AI? And why do we need that kind of expertise? You really need, I think, people who can think not narrowly in a single discipline. We've already cut across so many different dimensions of society, of humans, of cognitive science, of the technology. You can't analyze the system's thinking without you know, fairly deep knowledge of, of these things, because otherwise your predictions will be based on false axioms. I want to follow up on that with a second question, which is that many of the listeners to this podcast represent the next generation of technologists, and many of them could go into AI production and ideation and design. Yeah. What do you think that they should know before they go in to AI? What kind of classes do you think that they should take? What kinds of areas of knowledge should they become fluent in and why? Oh, my God. Take comparative ethics. Learn about ethical systems that are not the ones we grew up with. The world is big and it's full and, and polarization, not only as we're seeing domestically, but polarization geopolitically right now is literally an extinction level existential threat to humankind. We cannot survive another world war. Very soon, we will not even be able to survive wars launched by small independent groups or terrorist groups because AI robotics, drones, AI-powered biotech, etc., are democratizing weapons of mass destruction. We're, we're entering a world where weapons of mass destruction, both physical weapons and information warfare, are being so democratized that anyone can go in their basement and 3D print mass weapons that could wipe out humanity. You know, armed with drone technology, mesh technology, and biotech, CRISPR, you know, AI-powered things like CRISPR. Imagine a world where half the population is walking around carrying a weapon of mass destruction. Would you want to take a bet that not a single one of them is going to hit their launch button. Would I personally want to take that bet? No, I can't afford to lose more money. <laughs> Not right now. <laughs> good odds, though. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, look, like even if you even look at the gun situation is in the U.S., right? How many times a year do we get mass shootings? And if the weapons are so much bigger than that, we are facing a major threat that we're not grappling with. We're, we're just unconsciously trapped. This is the representativeness heuristic to give the, the unconscious bias a specific pointer. Unconsciously, everyone is still referencing World War II, etc., right? Where weapons of mass destruction are in the hands of nation states. We had not even invented nuclear weapons yet when World War II was happening, right? And so we calibrate our political approaches, our geopolitical approaches still on that basis because it's the most representative analogy from our recent experience that we can think of, not realizing that all the conditions have changed, that that style of geopolitical strategy is unsurvivable. And so if you're going on to develop AI, you are part of that democratization of what can wipe out humanity. 
and you have to think really long and hard about what you're going to contribute to. Our economy is not well set up for that. We were talking about the shareholder pressures on, you know, the social media search engine type companies earlier and what that the unintended consequences of what that drives AIs to learn to exploit in human unconscious biases in pursuit of profit. That cannot continue. That is unsurvivable. We have to, as a society, face up to that fact. We have to go back to the level of thinking of the founding fathers, where they analyzed all the complex system dynamics of their age to come up with a system of checks and balances that could work for that age. And it worked to an extent. It failed. We had a civil war. 250 years later, we are far beyond the assumptions upon which that level of systems thinking was developed. It, it no longer works. We need to go back to that level of thinking and re-architect. I want to circle back to that in a second because there's a quote from you that I, I have I'd like to pull up. Um, before I do, I want to ask you about this particular moment. I don't think that any of us can be thinking about any dimension really of our world without thinking about the fact that on a very radical level in our current environment, we are more dependent on tech than ever before to bridge the gaps imposed by social distancing. What role does AI play in this moment? Well, we are obviously using things like what we're doing right now, you know, remote conferencing tech much more heavily. You know, everybody is Zoom fatigued and so forth because it's the only way for many of us to engage. It's with each other is via the tech. It's been both a blessing and a curse. I don't know how you feel about it. One of the blessings is that I actually see a lot of people more often than I normally see them just because everybody is online. You know, like many of us never depended on things like Zoom before. And now it's such a daily habit that it's been amazing that, you know, I can actually depend on people, even tech averse people, <laughs> I can actually depend on them being online for, uh, that's been wonderful. Doesn't mean I'm answering my emails any more frequently than I used to. <laughs> no, God, I am, I don't know about you, I'm like two or three times as busy during the lockdowns than, than I was before the lockdown. <laughs> I'm hearing this from so many people. It's actually enabling productivity, or at least the, the, the semblance of productivity. And you have all these companies, especially tech companies now that are announcing this move to remote work is actually going to be a permanent option. So it is really I think, a blessing in the sense that it is bringing down carbon emissions tremendously. Last I saw, like carbon emissions are down by 17%. This is way more and way faster than all those attempts at Paris Accords and everything which we've pulled out of we're even trying to do, right? And it proves that if the world actually treats it as a crisis, that we can do it. Yes, there's a huge amount of economic pain and costs, but we can do it. And, you know, one of the issues with democracies is that well known that, that it's very bad at long-term thinking and, and things like climate change and, and also AI ethics um, challenges are long-term thinking. And also exponential modeling when it comes to uh, pandemics. Yeah, it, absolutely. I think the tech is actually helping us to see concretely that these things that we democratically just were always putting up obstacles to ever doing are actually possible if we tackle it and uh, suck it up and take the economic 
pain to pivot to a new economy. So that's that's a blessing in disguise. Yeah. I've heard people say that it's almost as though in another dimension, somebody is shining an ultraviolet light over our technology and we can now see where all of the cracks are. In other words, every moment at which a piece of technology is misaligned with the human value is now ultra visible to us in a way that it might not have been um, necessarily before. Indeed. I I wanted to ask a question about your latest work and your extremely important and influential study, as far as I understand it, that's based on the production of visual simulations. And that simulation demonstrates why we all need to wear masks. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah. Many people, obviously, COVID has been an urgent thing that if we can do something about it, we we try to do something about it from our respective cases. And one of the things that really was alarming me, bopping back and forth regularly between Hong Kong and Berkeley, was seeing this vast difference in the approach being taken to head off the damage between Hong Kong and most of East Asia versus the U.S. and and most of the West. We're all in like 15 different discussion groups about the coronavirus, right? (laughs) And found myself repeatedly in January and February having to ask people, you know, this particular group was heavily in the West, in Europe, in the U.S., why are none of you talking about masking? Because you're all talking about social distancing, how much distance do we need? You're all talking about how much testing, how much contact tracing. And you won't even think about masking. The WHO data and the Johns Hopkins data, they're all collected data about which countries, which regions are using social distancing, which are doing testing, which are doing contact tracing. They're not even collecting data about which regions are using masking. Isn't this a little bit weird? And like, you know, the... I think around the fifth time that I said that, you know, one of the other people said, maybe we should like get together a small group of us and like let's let's like do some research and write write about this. And so we co-convened this group of five with you know Berkeley and Hong Kong on my side, but then the UK, London, and Paris, and Finland, and Estonia, and again across disciplines, we're all bringing different disciplines into this, all the way to social, government policy economics and medicine. And we built new theoretical models to predict for the first time what the impact of various masking assumptions would be. We built data sets that actually do have the masking recorded in it. And so we discovered mm-hmm. that the models predicted, and, and you can actually witness this. You can play with a simulator after watching a, a tutorial video with four minutes explainer. That's probably the best place to start. If you go to dek.ai slash mask video, that will give the links to being able to play with a simulator itself and show you how if we all mask up by around 50 days after an outbreak reaches a certain level in our region, we still can cut the spread down to drive it back down to zero. But if we wait much longer, or if only half the population or, you know, like if it has to be 80 or 90% of the population that's wearing masks for this to work because of the exponential behavior of spread. If only half the population is wearing masks, it has almost no effect. I mean, this is remarkable. Your study marks, among many other things, a important intersection between multiple fields and practices and areas of expertise and arenas such as engineers and public health experts and media distributors and policymakers, and tells us a lot about the need for interdisciplinary collaboration. I'm still curious about, on the one hand, 
the efficacy of this study and the importance of the study. And on the other hand, the way in which the study is going to direct policy. Do you think that this study will change policy in places like the United States where there are intransigent politicians who won't make this kind of evidence-based simulation a priority? Yeah, we do have those problems, but I, I, we do see also this study having made an impact at, at that level. We know that it's been circulating at highest levels of the COVID committees for governments in a bunch of the European countries, as well as a bunch of U.S. states. The Colorado governor, Jared Polis, tweeted about it, <laughs> thousands of comments. Fox did an article a couple of weeks ago, seven best ideas for uh, exiting the lockdown safely. And uh, they let off, first idea was was our, our study with universal masking. And President Obama tweeted that out. <laughs> so I think it's, it's, it's falling on ears. Sean Hannity on Fox News in the last day or two went on the record on air pleading with people to wear masks. Are people wearing them now? Well, <laughs> well, not all, but I, you know, the studies are that like, you know, 80% plus of Americans are sort of now understanding masks to be important at some level. The message that the important message that we're still trying to get through and why it's important for us to get this circulated as much as possible at a mass level is that because in the U.S. so much of this is being done in a voluntary way as opposed to by by a law requiring it, that we need to do mass communications very heavily because, uh, again, 50% isn't enough. Like if half people are trying to be responsible, it's not enough. We really need 80, 90% of people to be wearing masks whenever they're um, around people. I wanted to circle back and ask you about what you politely called a mess earlier. You were recently quoted as saying that without clear artificial intelligence ethics, we have little chance of civilization surviving. Mess indeed. What do you mean by that? What existential threat does AI pose? Uh, AI today is preying upon our unconscious biases, our natural unconscious biases, to drive us to positions that we think are rational and supported, but further and further polarize us into different groups, into different in-groups and out-groups that are increasingly unable to even talk with each other because the languages that we've chosen, the predicates that we've chosen, the metaphors that we've chosen are not are so different that we frame our shared reality in two completely different ways. And we cannot even communicate because the languages are so different. We end up with AI-driven amplification of things like the continued influence effect, where even when we've, we are presented with counter evidence, we go on making inferences that are still based on the mistaken ideas. And even worse, the backfire effect, where when you present us with, count, with counter evidence, we double down and dig in even deeper on our mistaken idea. And so... That is what makes money for the AI-driven social media and search engine companies.
if we don't tackle that head on, it rips apart the fabric of our societies domestically. It rips apart the geopolitics when we're seeing this today, right now, in what's going on between U.S. and China and Hong Kong. It destroys democracy because we become so unconsciously misinformed or partially informed that we can't see past those unconscious biases anymore. It leads us into situations where conflict becomes increasingly unstoppable. And because of the democratization of weapons of mass destruction and information warfare, uh, it becomes an, a true existential risk to the planet and to humanity. About that existential risk, are you optimistic that civilization will survive it? Will we create the ethical guidelines and protocols that you think that we need in time to survive it? Well, we're trying our best, right? We have to be optimistic to even have a chance. If we're pessimistic, we just say, eh, there's nothing we can do. And, <laughs> and then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> we have to be optimistic. We have to rise to the challenge. Thank you, Dakai. Thank you so much, Deb.